Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. Today's guest is Carol Roth, a recovering investment banker, a frequent commentator on financial television, entrepreneur, and author of the new book, The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. In this episode, we talk about what Carol sees as one of the most underreported stories coming out of the pandemic. According to Carol, the government chose winners and losers, who would thrive and who would fight to survive based on not data or science, but based on clout and connections. As Carol puts it, this enabled the government with the aid of the Federal Reserve to oversee the largest wealth transfer in history from Main Street to Wall Street. According to Carol, these issues started long ago and continue today with a highly tilted playing field that favors those who are, quote, in the club to the detriment of average Americans. I really enjoyed this conversation with Carol, and I think you will too. Carol Roth, recovering investment banker, commentator on financial television, and the author of the new book, The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. It is so great to welcome you on the show, and great to see you again, Carol. Welcome. Yes, so great to be with you. Um, Obviously, we have a long history, but this is the first time in a while that we've had a chance to play. So I'm excited for this. I'm excited for this too. And I I actually, I, I read the, well, I did the audiobook version of your book. I also downloaded the Kindle. Great read, actually a really surprising read. And you're just mentioning, uh, before we get into the book, like our own history. This is such a great moment to have you on this podcast because in 2014, I did my first live television hit on CNBC, Closing Bell, and you were on set with me. And so you will always be part of that memory. So (laughs) it's extra special to have you on. And I guess for folks who are out there watching, I mentioned some of your your titles. Before we get into the book, can we get into a bit of your background? Um, Can you share (laughs) some of your background with the folks who are watching and listening? Yeah, such a such a bizarre background, but I guess if we end up in the spot that we're in, Julia, that it, it we we sort of never go in like a normal path. Um, so as mentioned, I'm a recovering investment banker, but even that was kind of weird. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. My dad was an electrician. My mom was sort of like a, a hobby entrepreneur. Um, and then when I got to school, I had to pay my way through college. So while I was there, I went to Wharton undergrad and everybody was like, well, there's two things that you can do. If you like to deep dive into something, you become a management consultant and you work at McKinsey. And if you have ADD, you become an investment banker. So you can work on a bunch of deals at the same time. And I'm like, oh, I'm definitely in the ADD camp. So I started um, out in sort of the deal making business. I was in corporate finance. I rose very quickly. I was a, a VP and a officer of the firm by the time I was trying 25 years old and just absolutely loved it. But at the same time, never really wanted to be the world's best investment banker. And so I had all these people who were like, oh, your personality would be so great on television. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I have always wanted to be a game show host. So I was trying to figure that out, but I knew that probably wasn't going to be like the next step. Um, And that's how I started to explore media. And actually is how I started to get interested in small business because I would have all these small business owners who would call me and they would want advice and they were getting really schlocky advice, but they couldn't even afford a retainer, you know, at a major investment bank. 
So I thought, you know, is there a way I can leverage media at scale to get better information to small business owners? And now two and a half decades later, (laughs) so here we are. Here we are talking about the war on small business. Here we are. Um, In your book, uh, you you mentioned your background in investment banking, corporate finance, and um, kind of transitioning into being you know, more financial commentary on on television as you were just laying out there. Um, There was a line in there and you said that you were appalled by what you've been seeing. Um, You had this kind of courtside seat into the financial markets and you were talking about the markets morphing um, and uh, seeing cronyism replace capitalism. I think I would love to just explore a bit of that um, kind of this evolution that you saw, what made you so appalled as that evolution unfolded, what were you seeing um, unfold? Yeah, I think that when I first started out um, way back in the day when I was a young and you know, it was all really about fundamentals. You didn't have the Federal Reserve coming in and tipping the scales and making decisions that really picked winners and losers and acted as a a capital transfer mechanism to the wealthy and the well-connected. We never talked about the Fed kind of before the Great Recession financial crisis. I mean, certainly Greenspan did some stuff on Black Monday, but it wasn't like part of the ongoing dialogue. Like we didn't sit around and watch and go, you know, are they going to raise a quarter of a point? You know, we were all focused on business fundamentals. And that was how businesses won and lost. You looked at their cash flow, you looked at their profits, you looked at their growth rates. And, you know, it was sort of a, a, you know, much more normal thing to to follow. And, you know, as time has gone on, and you've gotten these, you know, very well connected people who said, oh, we're going to shift the way the markets, you know, are in terms of more of a free market mechanism, and we're going to have this, this centrally planned entity making decisions that really do benefit the wealthy and the well-connected, not your average person on Main Street, not your smaller businesses, um, you know, not even the, the smaller companies are, that are publicly traded. I mean, this is really an environment that favors the biggest companies. And we saw that right during 2020 when you had seven of the biggest tech companies worth trillion in value from all of the quote unquote emergency help that the Fed gave. And I think that, you know, with that transition, we've we've also seen a focus on short-termism in the market. And I'm sure you've seen this a lot too, Julia, from your commentary. Um, You know, it used to be that businesses would make these really good long-term decisions, but they're so beholden to these, you know, quarterly reports and what's going on that they're focused on, you know, doing those things for for short-term traders. It's not even really for investors, because if you're an investor, you you should be looking at the long-term. And so you've got these sort of short-term, you know, decisions that kind of distort everything. And then the new piece that's come in, which isn't in this book, but maybe in the next one, go ahead, tease little, it. <laughs> little, little preview is all of this nonsense around ESG, um, taking the focus away from what benefits the shareholder and letting a small group of people dictate where capital should be allocated and how it should be allocated to bring about what they think 
is important versus what the company, you know, its shareholders and its own um, employees and customers think are important. So I think all of those things have shifted dramatically and the financial environment is so different from when I started out. And even frankly, when I started out in, in the commentary business um, versus what's, you know, what we're doing today, which is I would have never... <laughs> my life been like, oh, you know, I care and I'm going to sit around and watch, you know, Jerome Powell's press conferences and report on them and try to read into what that means for the global economy. Yet, once again, here we are. Yeah. Well, I found myself when I was reading your book, just taking tons of notes. And um, I mentioned, like, I found it surprising because I didn't know what to expect when I started reading it. And it was just example after example, like so thorough and well-researched and uh, just like chapter after chapter just kept me um, wanting to come back for more. It was just a great read all around. And I guess like, you know, you probably get this question all the time and maybe it's the simple question to ask, but what was it that made you want to write this book? Because it sounds like this was something that was kind of brewing um for you in the back of your mind for a while and then the pandemic was when it really came to light that it was all these kind of underlying forces were always there yeah it's interesting i was actually approached to write the book and what happened was in march of 2020 you know right at the time the lockdowns were contemplated um, i had written a piece i think it was maybe for fox uh, fox business something like that about, you know, I see where this is going and here's what you need to do to take care of small business. And oh, by the way, I'm sure you're not going to do this, but I'm just going to put it out there. So that had kind of, I had been thinking in that direction, but I never really thought about necessarily a book. And then Harper Collins approached me and they said, you know, we, we know this is going to be a historic moment in time. And we think financially, it's going to be a historic moment in time. And we want someone with some level of credibility to actually be able to follow what's going on and, you know, kind of record it for history and connect some dots. You know, would you like to do that? And like an absolute moron, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds really fun. Um, not realizing the scope of what I was getting myself into, because frankly, like we all thought this was going to be over in a couple of weeks. Like we, you know, we didn't think that this was going to go 15 days to slow the spread was going to go on for almost two years. So, you know, I just kind of signed up to something that I didn't know what I was signing up to. And I just followed along with what was happening real time. And to be perfectly honest, I wrote three and a half different books during that time with three different titles. And we kind of landed on this small subset of information because there was so much going on. And it felt, I still feel like it was the most underreported story or you know, this epic wealth transfer from Main Street to Wall Street was sort of the, the underreported story. I do wish they would have gone with my second title, which is The Looting of America, because I think the book in and of itself is about so much more than just small business, even though that's a, a centerpiece in how we get into the discussion, but it really is about, you know, capitalism and, you know, decentralization versus centralization and, and kind of what's been happening in terms of this wealth transfer. But, you know, it was a good way to, to kind of, I thought, get into it and, and differentiate it. And that's kind of how they wanted to position it. But like you said, I think that's probably why the book surprised you because it isn't just a you know, purely small business book as somebody might like to think about that. Yeah, yeah definitely not. Um, there's so many things I want to explore with you and you just kind of gave a nice outline too, but I'm um, just looking at my own notes and um, 
you have a chapter um about black swans and the black swan like kind of defining uh the black swan in the pandemic and it wasn't necessarily the pandemic the black yeah. swan was the government's reaction to the pandemic and that was one of those like aha moments where i wanted to take notes i want you to can you explain that for folks and maybe for the folks who aren't necessarily ones who are in this world or follow this world I guess kind of explain to them what a black swan is. Uh, and we know yeah. Nassim Taleb yeah, uh, wrote the book. Said, yeah. And, so Nassim Taleb will probably yell at me for my explanation. So no disrespect, sir. I, I appreciate you and, and credit him, obviously, with the term. But the black swan is an event that comes up that nobody predicts. And it's usually used within a financial context that is really huge in scale, comes out of nowhere, it's not on anyone's radar, and sort of upends things. And so I had all these people who were like, oh, it's a black swan, there's a pandemic. Well, as I talk about it in the book, that not only wasn't a black swan, but there was a series of exercises that had been done in 2019 leading up to, I think they finished in November called Crimson Contagion. And it was the set of you know war games or exercises or whatever for a pandemic that was you know, some sort of this weird bio thing leaking from a lab in China. Like it sounded really, really familiar. And they went through this with various states. And so like there should have been an obvious response because they had just prepped for that in 2019. So there, there's nothing black swanish about that. The black swan was that the government was like, let's shut down a third of the economy. And I remember having this discussion distinctly with my husband in February of 2020, when all of this was going on. By the way, I got OG COVID in February of 2020 and was over it before any of this happened. So we were having this discussion and you know things were a little bit worse at that point in time in Europe and in China. And so we said, okay, so like theoretically, could you just shut everything down for two weeks? And we're both like, no, like who's gonna go along with that? Like, that's such a ridiculous thought. And we're like, okay, yeah, no, that, that's off the table. And then the way that it actually worked and the reason why that happened is because they didn't actually shut everything down for two weeks. They shut down the, the non-connected, the non-essential as they deemed them, you know, the, the big businesses, the, the wealthy and the wealth, connected didn't have their lives disrupted you know the big publicly traded companies they they got support from the fed um and so they actually all benefited so it was really this this burden that went on people um, in the small business community and in those businesses that were consumer facing in particular that shuttered the burden so it was about a third of the economy if we think about the gdp and how much it contracted in, in april of 2020 that was shut down um had it been everyone, had it been Amazon's warehouse, had it been your grocery store, had it been all of those big companies, those big publicly traded companies, and had the Fed not come in to support, there is no way it would have lasted even the two weeks. There would have been outrage. We can't live like this. This is insane. And it would have been over and we would have moved to the mitigation response that we've all lived through, which was, you know, the, the one that was going to make sense here as we, we knew in the beginning of, of March 2020. But because it really impacted um, people who were viewed as quote unquote non-essential, if you can imagine the gall of calling, you know, the backbone of America and the average person on Main Street non-essential, you know, the big guys were benefiting. They were benefiting from the competition 
who couldn't shop at small businesses going to the big businesses. They were benefiting with this, you know, easy money. <laughs> it was great for them. It was a super prosperous time. So what did they care? Like they wanted to do that. And then obviously from a, a government standpoint, a lot of folks at the local state and, and on up got a ton of power and they were loving the power trip. So the pandemic mm -hmm. was great. They thought it was fabulous. And that's how, you know, this whole, this whole idea of like, we're all in this together got completely bastardized. We were not all in it together. Decisions were made based on political cloud and connections, not data and science, and really only a fraction of the population bore the brunt of what was happening. Yeah. So again, more things to, to explore there. Um, you mentioned, and, and yeah, you're right. Like they weren't full lockdowns. They're partial lockdowns. We know the, the businesses were that were open. They were the big businesses that you just highlighted and the small business owner. And I kind of like look back too, but like when you, when you read the book, you give some very um, vivid and clear examples of the small business owners. Um, I don't have the names of the folks uh, off the top of my head, but there's one about the woman who was cutting hair and she felt that Shelley she could do, I'll let you tell the story, but she could cut hair in a cleaner, more sanitary environment. And she go to jail or something. Tell the story because in Texas, did we not stand up for the folks? Like we looked at like, what happened. It's a, this was an abomination. So yeah, Shelly Luther was a small business owner. She had a salon in Texas and she actually did shut down for a period of time, but you know, eventually her folks were like, well, I need to make a living. You know, I, I'm going to go to people's houses. We're going to continue to do this. So what are we, what are we doing here? And she's, like you said, she felt like she could come up with a scenario that was clean, that made sense. And so eventually she's like, this is my livelihood. Like I'm, I'm going to do what works for me. And if, you know, if you as a client don't want to come in, I'm not going to force you to come in, but I'm going to, you know, keep this as an option. And so she got cease and desist orders and it just kind of snowballed and she ripped them up. And eventually trying to make an example, um, a judge that I believe it was Dallas County sentenced her to jail. And there was just a huge uproar and the Lieutenant governor, you know, stepped in and offered to take her place and, you know, all, all these things. And eventually, um, you know, that was settled, but you know, first of all, that happened in Texas. So like, you know, this whole idea of, of, oh, this was a free state and it still happened there, but there were other examples, you know, gyms in New Jersey and, you know, restaurants in California and all these different businesses that were contended, some in a very short period of time and some in an ongoing period of time um, with these ridiculous requirements. And the frustrating thing about something like a, a hair salon is that you could go to PetSmart down the street um, and if, or one of the big box pet stores, I don't know if PetSmart actually cleans dogs' nails, but like one of the big box ones, you know, you, you could get your dog's haircut at, but you couldn't get your own haircut <laughs> at the smaller footprint. And it just didn't make sense. There was no data behind it. And it just took away the element of choice for people, particularly those who, you know, weren't as at risk. And again, we, we had the data to support that there were a certain segment of the population that were at risk. It was the people who were elderly and the people who were, you know, particularly um, obese and had certain issues. And the rest of the people, you know, like myself who got it in February, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but, you know, I get the flu every year. I just got the flu. 
<laughs> this December and you kind of, you know, you move through it. That's, that's the way it goes. Um, and this idea that we were going to like, just shut down the economy for that is it, it, it's to, to think about it, like just remove yourself, you know, in the future, people are going to be like, they shut the economy down for that. Like it, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. And, and the fact that it, not enough people felt that that was mind blowing speaks to the way that they did it and how it didn't impact some people the way that it impacted others. Do you think that we will do a a post-mortem on, on 2020 and, you know, in the event that there's another one of these, like maybe like a future pandemic, I don't know. Do you think that we would address it differently, behave differently, or would we see this movie again? Like the, the kind of shutdowns we saw. So my biggest concern is the boy who cried wolf scenario that, you know, these things that the way that we acted it for something that we didn't, we shouldn't have acted that way, that when we actually do need to act that way, people are going to be, feel like they were burned and not listen. And they're going to go, no, no, this time we're telling the truth. It's serious. And they're going to go, yeah, we heard this before. And so that that's actually my biggest concern is, is that, you know, they acted this way for something that they shouldn't have. And so if we ever do need to act in a serious manner, people are, you know, the, the credibility has been burned. But unfortunately, I think that the country is divided. I think there were people who gained a lot of power and control um, and wealth from this. They love this. They would love to see it again. There are a lot of people that I call um, useful idiots that either, you know, because it's just part of their belief system, or maybe they don't want to admit that, you know, they were potentially wrong or whatever, they're going to go to the mat and they would do the exact same thing again. They didn't learn anything. And I think there's a portion of the country who now, you know, has even less trust in, you know, government institutions and media than they did before, which, you know, the bar was really, really low. I didn't think it could get any lower, but, you know, it did. And so I think we have a very different set of circumstances, but there's no way the population showed that it's willing to go along with a lot of insanity that frankly was just staggering to, to many people. And I think the people who have you know power and control and see how they can benefit from that financially and otherwise are certainly gonna try and do that again. Mm-hmm. How about, um, I'm sure you saw the article in the Atlantic. It was sometime late last year about COVID amnesty. What are your thoughts <laughs> on that? Do you think there should be some amnesty? What do you think? I think people should go to jail, frankly. I think that, you know, there were a lot of things that were done that were done with malice and ill will and bad intention. And if people don't face consequences for that, it's more likely to happen again. Um, So I give, I give nobody amnesty. If you make a mistake and you own it, that's fine. And, you know, we can move on from there, but there were a lot of people who knew exactly what they were doing and did this on purpose and it should suffer consequences. Like give me some examples. I mean, you don't have to name names or anything, but give, give some like examples. I think people who um, knew that the vaccines didn't prevent transmission yet told us that they prevented transmission. People who fired people without pay, um, even though they knew that 
somebody individually taking the vaccine, it didn't impair whether or not they transmitted COVID to other people, people who made decisions on shutting down schools, even though the kids were not at risk, and basically um, throwing a wrench in their learning and personal development and PTSD, like those people need some level of accountability, and it needs to be serious. Otherwise, it's just going to happen again. Like we just can't have people acting in a manner, um, you know, where they intentionally know that they're lying. I mean, even, you know, every, everybody in the media's, you know, favorite guru Fauci, you know, admitted himself that he lied on different things like, you know, mask mandates. He said that, you know, in the beginning, they told us not to get masks that they don't work. And I have it very well documented in the book, all of the people in the government and in the media who made fun of individual Americans who were running out to get masks. And Fauci said, oh, well, that was because we needed them, you know, for the, the you know, the professional workers, which, you know, if you're buying a cloth mask from Walgreens, that's not going to a professional worker anyway. But again, just be straight, just say, hey, we need these for the workers. So could you make one at home? Here's how. And then, you know, he, so he's like, come out and say like, we intentionally misled, misled people. And that's why we've changed our tenor yet. He's still held up as a guru. And I think that's one of many, many issues with Fauci that uh, an expert on him could certainly go into better than I could. Yeah. I mean, I, it, that, like, it does make sense if you, if you just say, Hey, we need them for the, the frontline first responders. Um, and here's why, like, yeah, like you said, make your own, you'd be like, yeah, of course. Like I almost feel like a jerk if I sure. went and bought it in 95 yeah. and the doctors cool. couldn't get them or something, you know, yeah, cool. um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you were mentioning before, like about the impact on GDP with small businesses. And I think sometimes, and I think, I feel like you kind of point this out too, Sometimes people hear the word small businesses and they don't really fully grasp like the actual impact they have. They are truly the backbone of the economy, yeah. the GDP. Can you help kind of frame up um, the importance of the small business landscape here in the U.S.? Yeah, so small businesses, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that, is that people don't think it's like an important piece. It sounds small and insignificant, but before COVID, it was about half the GDP and about half the jobs in this country. So it really is about decentralization. Um, the numbers have grown. The last numbers that I saw were about 32.6 million um, small businesses, you know, highly decentralized that account for that, you know, half of the economy. And on the big business side, the other half of the economy is very highly concentrated and, you know, 20, 21,000 big businesses. So if you think about that, um, it's really sort of a tale of two different economies, half that has a ton of power and a ton of capital and really can direct things. And the other half, you know, that represents all kinds of freedom in terms of different industries and different geographies and different demographics serving all different kinds of needs. Um, and so it's really important for us to be able to have choice in terms of our employment, in terms of products and services, and to keep that um, power nexus, that big government and big business and big special interest power nexus to to take some of that away you you need to have more on the the decentralized side 
what happened during the pandemic is it's just moved more of that power towards that other side, that nexus, that cronious nexus, um, which isn't capitalism, it isn't free markets, and it really isn't to the benefit of anybody who's seeking economic freedom. You were mentioning um, centralization. I, I want to explore this further because I think it is really helpful for folks when you break it down and help them understand. Um, you're talking about centralization versus decentralization. Um, in the book, you talk about central planning. Uh, you call central planning America's worst trade deal. Can you help folks understand um, this like a bit further, this decentralization versus centralization and central planning, how we got here? Yeah, so we get very caught up in the semantics, which is why I try to, to look at everything like a spectrum. And it's why I use central planning instead of, you know, any of the like ism words because of people, oh, well, that's not real this and that's not like, I don't care. So you mean like communism, con socialism, you know, free markets. So like whatever, whatever weird, you know, things that they want to call, you know, centralization. I don't care. It's about the concept. So the idea of capitalism to me is, you know, freedom, it's freedom, it's choice. Um, it's done with a lot of transparency and the decisions of lots and lots of people go into that, you know, freely. As you move along the spectrum, the central planning aspect, the centralized piece of that is the decisions of a handful of people dictating what goes on. And it's usually done um, you know, with some level of opacity. So you have sort of freedom and choice on one side and you have you know, a handful of people making you know, their edicts on the other side. And that's really the spectrum that we're working with. You know, certainly in this country, we don't have true free market capitalism. There are areas where we do, but we've over time as the government has gotten bigger and their purview has gotten larger and they have more dollars to dole out and more laws um, that they've created, we've definitely moved along that spectrum where we have exported you know, people moving a little bit closer to free markets, certainly not totally to free markets, but a place like China, where they've had elements of it. Now they're of late starting to erode that and move back in the other direction um, to their own detriment. But, you know, the, the prosperity comes when you have that freedom and choice and, you know, people making decisions and letting the market sort out the balances, because no matter how smart the people are, no matter how many tools they have, they're never going to be able to replicate the decisions of, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of decisions that are made on a daily basis that, you know, kind of weigh into that. And then the other issue, um, you know, I go back to legendary investor, Charlie Munger, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. People are motivated by incentives. So humans have their own reasons why they're doing things. And the more power that they have and the, the fewer checks and balances, um, you know, they're going to move things in terms of what benefits them or, you know, the whims of whatever they want to for whatever incentive or reason they have in mind. So, you know, that is really the battle. And so if you want to have the ability for more people to participate in economic freedom and wealth creation and have you know, freedom in the way that suits them, then you're going to be in favor of you know, less centralization. Um, and unfortunately, we've just moved in the other direction. Yeah, I like that, like freedom and, and, and choice. Um, what, what is kind of your 
assessment of capitalism today here in the U.S.? Yeah, we, unfortunately, we just don't have capitalism it, at large. You know, we have this sort of weird kind of central planning croniest um, system going on. I don't use the word crony capitalism because there are no, there is no room for cronyism in true capitalism. So we have this weird kind of hybrid system where you can find pockets of you know, free markets in certain places for certain times, but certainly that the system is set up to favor um, the, the wealthy and the well-connected and the big and those who have the lobbying dollars. And it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling cycle, you know, particularly as we've allowed more money uh, to go into in influencing elections and the government, you know, having a bigger scope and, and purview. So, you know, we've moved away from that. And I think it, again, has been to our detriment. And it certainly does hasn't provided um, the, you know, the opportunities for everyone. And it's enabled, you know, the things, you know, the central planning of, you know, the Federal Reserve, you know, in cahoots with the government and their spending, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, you know, that's really to the benefit of everyone. And it's not, <laughs> it's, it's creating more people who are dependent upon the government and it's transferring wealth from Main Street to Wall Street and to the wealthy and wealth connected. And when you see the, the, the rich quote unquote getting richer, that's the reason why. It's not because of pure capitalism and freedom and people duking it out in the market and they just ended up you know, as the, the better one. I have no problem with that. I have a huge problem when somebody is tipping the scale and the Fed and the government um, you know, and the other elite have been working together to do that. And um, you know, it's part of the reason why you know, the, the millennials and, and Gen Z don't have as much, even though they're making more money than their boomer counterparts did at the same age, they don't have as much wealth. And it's because of all these distortions in the market. There are, again, so many great things to dive into there. Um, I want to bring up the Fed since you mentioned the Federal Reserve. Um, what's been the Fed's role in this or help people understand, maybe even those who don't follow the Fed as closely, um, you do bring up the Fed in the book, um, their role in this and what like, a, you know, kind of maybe your more typical um you know, person doesn't necessarily follow the day-to-day -day of the financial markets, how they should think about the central bank and all of this. They should think about the central bank as a failed experiment for the average American and an evil entity whose powers must be taken away. And I don't say abolish the Fed because if the, they're, uh, powers and mandate went to Congress, we would be in an even worse scenario. So I have a problem with people who come in and feel like they can dictate what the money supply should be and what interest rates should be a lot of, instead of the market sorting that out or the money supply being tied to growth and productivity since your money is a proxy for productivity. Um, I have a real problem with that. And what they have in effect done is not only transfer wealth from savers and retirees who, for example, used to be able to get some interest income on their savings and use that to be able to live. They've made those people get 
zero percent on their savings and then taken that money and used it to finance big companies that already have solid balance sheets to go out and be able to compete. And they're competing in the market uh, for all kinds of things. They're competing with small businesses. Now they're competing with the individuals for buying single family homes. So, I mean, it's completely disrupted, um, you know, what, what is happening in the market and it's, to the it's to the benefit of the wealthy and well connected you know you have these boom and bust cycles in business and they have been completely exacerbated by what the fed has done so when when things go bad they go really bad and then they go you know to the moon and then they go back down but who does that benefit that benefits somebody who's wealthy who has the ability to wait that out to to go through that cycle it doesn't benefit the person who one maybe isn't following the financial markets and gets scared and so of course they sell at the absolute worst time and then are afraid to get back in and and miss out on the big boom um and so you know then you have all these people who have the financial wherewithal who see these busts buy up assets at low prices and then get a benefit from the big booms. So it's very wonky. It's very opaque. It's very hard to understand, but people need to get better educated. It's why, you know, I spend a whole chapter on it, which is one of my favorite chapters actually in the war on small business. I also spent some time um, in my upcoming project and I think, unfortunately, I wish they weren't so front and center, but they are. Um, they've created $9 trillion out of nowhere that they put onto their balance sheet that devalues the dollar that has you know, stoked the inflation that you are paying for quite literally. And you know, if we don't subdue and take away their ability to continue to do this and rethink our monetary system, um, you know, the, the, the value of whatever it is that you've worked so hard for, the purchasing power of that is going to be nil. So you're not going to be a millionaire. You're going to be a millionaire with an N. That's a millionaire. It. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's not, you're not saying abolish the Fed, um, but what would be some changes that you would like to see? I mean, get rid of their mandates that, that nobody has the mandate to set interest rates that can be sent in the market between banks and nobody, um, you know, should be able to print money. I mean, the amount of money that we've printed at this point, I'm not sure that we need to print any again in our lifetimes. Uh, but if productivity ever did catch up to um, the money supply and we needed to expand it, if you go back to economists like Milton Friedman, Friedman with the K percent rule, you know, there's an opportunity for you to say, okay, what's a proxy for productivity? You know, maybe it's the GDP and the GDP has increased 1% this year. So we'll have a you know increase in the money supply that mirrors that. And it's just a fixed um, formula and that's it. We're, we're, we're done. It, it, it's done by proxy based on something that actually makes sense. And, you know, the Fed can do like, you know, other small, silly things that they do. That's fine. But like the, the bit, the big kahuna of interfering um, in terms of markets, just it, it needs to be taken away because, you know, again, if we abolish them, 
and then those things come up again and now you have congress sitting around deciding what interest rates should be or the money supply or whatever um that's the only worse outcome i can think of yeah i'd just be curious like maybe a bit, bit more recently like with the fed um raising rates um i think they want to um they want to tackle inflation, get back to that 2% target. A lot of folks who've come on this show have said they don't see that being feasible. They don't see a 2%. They think it'll be a lot more persistent, stickier, higher, like around like 4% or whatnot. Um, but their efforts, because they they want to focus on the unemployment part of it, um, increase unemployment. How do, you, how do you think about the Fed's more recent actions and tying into this conversation because okay, if a lot yeah. of people lose their jobs they're not gonna be happy okay well first of all let's just talk about the fact that they caused this like this was their cause they have kept interest artificially low for a very long period of time they had just started raising them then they took emergency measures to save the market which didn't need to be taken but even if you believe let's just say yeah believe that need to be taken the NASDAQ hit a high, like an all-time high on June 5th of 2020. And then they continued on for almost two years after the market was at an all-time high with emergency support. What was the emergency? There was no emergency. The market did better in 2020 than like any year that I can think of in recent times. So the fact that, and we, by the way, all said, this is going to cause inflation. This is going to cause inflation. And then, you know, you get the American Rescue Plan, which has stimulus. We're like, this is going to cause inflation. Oh, st stimulating the economy is going to stimulate the economy. I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, they're the ones that created this. Then they didn't, quote unquote, see inflation coming. Then they said it was transitory. And now all of a sudden they've got the personal, you know, the perfect skills to fix it. They don't know what the flying F they are doing or they're doing it intentionally. I don't care what the theory is. The outcome is the same. So, you know, we need to continue to recognize that they're the ones that created this problem. And then, you know, this kind of push-pull dynamic, you know, one of the, the issues that we have is that many of the reasons why inflation is further exacerbated are supply issues, right? We don't have enough um, oil and gas you know, to bring those prices down. We don't have enough people in the labor force. We don't have enough houses that are built, you know, all those things. The Fed does not print oil, it does not print people, it does not print homes, their tools are killing demand. So we're trying to solve a, a supply side issue with demand side problems. And that in of itself doesn't make any sense. Plus whatever it is that they do takes a while to cycle through. So the idea that they're going to somehow perfectly lead us into the land of the free solving the problem that they created is like the arsonist who burned your house down being like, oh, let me, you know, let me help you with your, your new house here. I'll, I'll start a GoFundMe for you. I just, they're just, they're despicable. They're despicable people and I hate them all. And they played a role, as you point out, in this massive wealth transfer. Um, you have that whole chapter on it. You talk about, um, and we talked about at the top of this, this epic wealth transfer. You originally wanted to name this book, The Looting of America, I guess, to really drive home that yeah. point. 
help me understand. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can quantify it, but help me understand the wealth transfer. And is there any going back? Cause like once that's been transferred, do we yeah. go back? Is there a way back? Does the pendulum swing back or is this just going to reshape the fabric of the country? So in a way, you know, it's all, it was all for naught because you know, part of the transfer, there's the direct and the indirect transfer. There was the direct transfer in terms of shutting people down so people couldn't shop there and that money went to the big guys. And there was the indirect transfer of the easy money policy in terms of giving um, you know, more capital at you know, negative real interest rates to all the, these big companies. And as we saw, we saw you know, 3.4 trillion in value increase from seven tech companies, as I talked about before. Now, as the Fed has reversed their policy, guess what happened? All of this came out of the market. Like if you look at the midpoint last year, then you had eight and a half trillion dollars that had come out of the market. And 3.4 trillion of that came from 401ks and IRA accounts. Um, so, you know, anything that they were doing, you know, anything that they were trying to do kind of came out the other side. And so we went through all of this brain damage for nothing. There was no, there was no benefits, except for the fact I was talking about before these boom and bust cycles, that when everybody gets washed out, then the people with capital get to buy again and ride the up, the next upswing. So, you know, it is just this kind of continual bleeding of you know during the good times the people who are you know on main street don't participate as well and it, and then during the bad times you know they're losing too so it's just a you know like a punch in the face in one direction and another um and you know i do unfortunately think that's going to continue to happen until more people stand up and say enough's enough and it's interesting you see all the different protests that happen like nobody's out like protesting the fed anymore like back in the 70s they did that they you know when volcker took the interest rates up to 19 percent, there was all kinds of craziness that went went on Saturday Night Live did skits about money printing, right? It was like a thing. And now, even though this is really impacting people financially, they're just complaining about it and making TikTok videos, but nobody's actually taking any action to do things that would um, you know, help with wealth creation for the average American. Yeah, making TikToks. Um, you, <laughs> you mentioned, this was interesting to me, um, millennials and Gen Z, they're making more money relative to like their boomer parents at their age, yet they don't have as much wealth. Yeah. I want to explore that a bit. And what do you think are some of the broader implications for those, those generations? So I'm just going to do a light tease on this. If you want more info, carolroth.com forward slash nothing n-o-t-h-i-n-g sign up for my what may or may not be my next book that may or may not be coming out in the spring um, where I'll dive more deeply but just as a little teaser here um, yeah it's really interesting there's a pundit named Kevin Drum who did a really good analysis on this and he took everybody in their like like at 40 they looked at like the 35 to 45 cohort at 40 as a midpoint and adjusted for inflation and adjusted for you know individual income to account for women in the workforce and found that you know on a dollar inflation adjusted a dollar basis that younger people are making more money than 
Gen X did at that age, and then the boomers did at that age. But if you go back and you look at aggregate wealth and housing ownership, they don't have that. And that is for a lot of reasons, but some of them, um, again, just to tease, include being saddled with insane amount of college debt, which comes from the government getting into a predatory lending situation and creating, um, actually becoming the biggest predatory lender in the country with the way that they have uh, manipulated college loans and ultimately college costs. Um, and then obviously the overall cost environment that you know has been affected by things like the Fed. So you have more dollars, even on inflation adjusted basis, but the cost of everything has been bastardized by all of these outside forces. And um, you know, so people are are unfortunately taking in less wealth, which is something that um, you know we look to we're looking to turn around. Yeah. Especially the housing part of something I'm thinking about. It's like all these, also like not to mention like the big institutions that have been buying up single family homes, like buying up the inventory. It's gotta be crazy to buy a but, house. So, so fun, fun fact about that. Um, that's, that was created out of the great recession, financial crisis and from the fed. That was, that was something that didn't exist before 2010. So wow. just think about that. More, yeah. to, more to come on that as well. More to come on that. More to okay. come on that. Yeah. You can give me some teasers. Let's see if we can get. <laughs> okay. You may or may not have a book coming out this May spring. or may not. Okay. Can we get like another teaser on the ESG <laughs> bit? Yeah, like sure. leave us with something uh, good on ESG just to think about. So the way I think of, I mean, ESG, it's so hard as everyone wants you to explain it. And because there's no set criteria for it, it's like whatever the elite feel like in one day, you can go to Europe where, you know, they went like, oh, well, maybe we should reconsider weapons being ESG friendly because we want to support the war on Ukraine. But before they were not ESG friendly. It's like they're just making it up as they go along. Um, but the nefarious part about it is that it's business social credit. So if you think about a handful of people going like, how can we get businesses to embrace what I want? That's a really bad thing. Not to say that we shouldn't be good stewards of the environment, not to say we shouldn't be socially responsible, not to say, you know, we shouldn't have good corporate governments, but those are things that self-regulate in the market. You know, investors don't want to invest in companies with bad, you know, corporate governments. Um, if you're treating your employees badly, customers don't want to do business with you. There, there are self-regulating mechanisms and companies that do those things well for whatever works for them is great. But this idea that there's some, this other stakeholder group, this quote unquote societal stakeholder that somehow magically has a say, it's like, according to who? According to who? Anybody ask you that question? You know, what's the greater good according to who? That's why when people make investments as a fiduciary, they do it uh, you know, for you as the investor, because you're, you have something actually at stake. You have money at stake. And so it, it needs to be in the best interest of your investment. And they let all those other things regulate and they let you have a voice. But the idea that BlackRock gets to dictate like the, the social norms or the World Economic Forum or some set of you know, fee extracting consultants 
that's nuts. And there is a fortune to be made. There are all these people who are now ESG experts who are running around and infecting companies and wasting resources. And in some cases, directing resources away from important work to, to comply with this nonsense. Like it's just bad. It's just like putting more like middlemen in the government. It's exactly what we've been doing to everything. We need to be slimmed down. We need to get refocused on the things that matter. And so ESG, you know, it's not just, you know, this kind of like sad, silly little thing. It's actually very evil. And it's another thing that is impacting people's wealth. More yeah. to come on that. <laughs> More to come on that. Um, I'm sure folks will start uh, signing up to reorder. Um, you know, we only have a few minutes left, but it just kind of makes me just come back to this notion of like thinking for yourself, right? Um, or like what you can do as an individual. I guess in the final few minutes, like what kind of message would you leave for the audience, what can they do on an individual level? Or even what are some of the things that you do, Carol, as an individual? Yeah, I think um, obviously it all depends on where your strengths lie. We need people with different strengths doing different things. But, you know, as we talk about like these economic recessions, I'm very worried right now about personal recessions. If you are, you know, the average American, what you've been doing is you've been spending to keep up with inflation. You're keeping up with the Fed instead of keeping up with the Joneses or the Kardashians. And you are now eating into your savings, XX excess savings are going down. The personal saving rate is amongst, you know, the, the top, you know, four historic lows on records. Consumer debt is off the charts, including credit card debt. And people probably because they have jobs and because they are feeling good, because if they do own a home, you know, they've got equity in their home, they're feeling like they can continue to sustain the spending and take on more debt and they're killing their personal wealth. So, you know, the most important message I can give you is to really think about personal wealth, to think about cutting back on expenses to make investing, um, it, you know, an ongoing and in a, a lifelong endeavor, and also to to you know think about diversifying your investments to include hard assets where you can, because these issues around the Fed and money printing, and probably in the future, you know, a central bank digital currency are not going away, and so you know things like having some land if you can have it, you know, having um, some, you know, precious metals, you know, as a component of your portfolio, I think are important things for people to really get serious about now, if you're thinking for the long term. So, you know, the short term plan is always to, to get rid of debt, especially floating debt at this point, um, you know, to, to call back your expenses, to, to try and make investments and get into, you know, some hard assets where you can, and then also to just be willing to speak up. I think that like so many people see these things going on, they know something's wrong, they feel off about it. Like, you know, lend your voice. And if you if you can't do it in a way that's public, like write a letter, make a phone call, call a company, call your representative, tell them what's not okay. I remember a, a New York Times article saying something like, it, it takes like 15 or 20 phone calls to somebody in Congress to get them to move because nobody calls anymore. So if all of a sudden 15 or 20 people call in one day, it's like an emergency crisis. It's kind of like Twitter, you know, how like all of a sudden, like, 
a few people are talking about something and it trends and then all of a sudden the media are like people are saying yeah. and it's like two pe- two random people with 100 followers said that but that's how it becomes you know that's it's how it's perceived so this idea that we can't fight back that we can't use the court system that we can't make a difference i think people just kind of come to accept that we've got very complacent and unfortunately our future is going to look very different and not in a good way if we don't start taking some of that back. So do it at the personal level, do it at the community level, get bigger if you can, and uh, just know I got your back. I want you to succeed. Those are some good lessons. Um, Carol, I want to pass it back to you real quick. Let let folks know where they can find you, like whether it's on social media, your site, newsletter, book, Um, just take a couple minutes to let them know where they can find you and learn more and, you know, support your work. Awesome. Um, as long as they'll have me and they've been suppressing my tweets. So hopefully that'll shift back too. Uh, but I am theoretically on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. You have to put the J.S. in the middle, but generally easy to find the first time, not necessarily on an ongoing basis. Um, the War on Small Business is available everywhere. I do encourage people Again, capitalism, vote with your dollars. Think about buying from a local small business bookstore. 63 cents of that will stay in your local community. Or you can go to bookshop.org and they will fulfill from a um, small business bookstore that's close to you. So that's a great way to do it. And then if you want to know about some of these new things that I'm teasing that may or may not be coming out on May 9th-ish, carolroth.com forward slash nothing, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, and you can sign up there and I'll let you know when I'm ready to let you know, which probably will be pretty soon. Probably pretty soon we'll start talking about it. But if you thought this was epic, we're talking... 630 footnotes at last. Wow. Yeah. We'll we'll have to have you back on when that one comes out. (laughs) Highly. I mean, that's, that's one of the things for me is like, you know, I, I'm generally, even though some of the things that I'm talking about may seem like out there, like this is all really well-sourced stuff. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time being like, you know, who are like the other big names who are like talking about these things and they're not because a lot of them are complicit and a lot of them just don't want the backlash and we need more people talking about these things. Yeah. 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 Those are, it's, that's a good point too. Like, like you were saying earlier, like speak up uh, and speak out. Um, and I want to plug for you, make sure that you are subscribed to the Julia LaRoche show and that you support Julia and her work because I have known her since her very first TV hit. I was there live for it. You do great work. I mean, just the, the questions here, just the, the depth and the thought that you put into them. And it was just such a, a high level, interesting conversation. I hope that your audience appreciated it because I think you did a really incredible job in navigating it. So support Julia, support small businesses. You are now an entrepreneur and a small business owner. And that is the backbone of America. Well, I really appreciate that, Carol. Thank you so much. Carol Roth, author of The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of of America. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. And I look forward to having you on the show again soon. Thanks, Carol. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.